Now, at Dork College, we've never made a habit out of taking attendance in chapel, but Rockland Mao, are you here? <laughs> Dr. Walker Cosgrove? Dr. Neil DeRue? As soon as chapel finishes, we'll have a little break, some music will be playing, and we'll give a chance for everyone to exit who's got to get to class and other commitments. If anybody wants to stick around for the public shaming or cheering, um, <laughs> we'll do that right afterwards. And just a great big thank you. First of all, can you join me in just showing some appreciation and love for the guys who've been willing to do this? And thank you to all of you as a body, um, as a community, even after our last announcements, um, more donations continue to trickle in, and we actually ended up well above $18,000 um, for the commitment you guys put together, so thank you. Please join me in prayer. Father, what joy for us to gather to sing songs to you, to remind us of our place in the midst of all this busyness that comes at this time of year, to be still, to center ourselves, to find the center of the story, to find our story with you in the middle one more time again. Father, we pray that during this time, you would be born again within us in new ways, that we would find ourselves more fully in you, in you and us. For that's why you did this. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't really like Christmas anymore. Bah humbug. Anybody else feel like that sometimes right about now? I woke up this morning and I thought, you know, to be totally transparent and honest, I don't really want to shave my head. <laughs> and I realized in self-reflection, I'm more vain than I even realized. And then I felt guilty that I had even thought that. Scrolling through the news feed this morning, a name comes up at the top of the list. Dr. Kent Brantley, named one of People of the Year, Time Magazine, the Ebola Fighters. I volunteered to have my head shaved for a cause on the other side of the world and some people who are suffering because of this. He actually contracted Ebola and then returned to the front lines after he was well again to walk intentionally back into the fray because he believed that the incarnation of Christ is not just something that gets told in a story, but must be lived again and again in each of us. Incarnated amongst the least of these, the Jesus in him. One more time again. So then I saw that and I felt guilty about feeling guilty. And I got stuck in this spiritual, self-deprecating, six-cycle carousel, and I'm sure you've never been there before. We do this, don't really know what to do and what to say. I've shared with you before, one of the other reasons I don't like holidays 
So as a preacher, you sort of feel this pressure to create something, to say something significant enough to justify a rousing inside of people a significant response to the Christ event. Our lives are the most busy around the holidays. So how do you cut through Jesus' songs being played, blasted from the mall so we'll come and sell their wares that are being hawked? That somehow we'll fill up our lists of things we want and we'll meet together and create party after party, event after event. And how do you cut through all of that busyness one more time again to say this is about Christ? How do you rattle? How do you cut through to make the most significant events of not just history but our lives as well back into their rightful place? And I don't really know how to do it. As a church, typically what we do is we create these pageants around Christmas time and we try to fill this event with some sort of significance and big sound and big event and pageantry because isn't that what the coming of God deserves? And yet as we read the story of the coming of God, God himself did everything he could to eliminate the pageantry of the event. And as I was reading through the story again, in the Luke 2 account, the coming of Jesus is so normal. Maybe boring. Read the story in Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Then suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. In Luke's telling of the story, he goes out of his way to give us the historical details and even the fact that what's driving the story isn't even an issue or a decree from God himself, but from the ruler of the earth at the time, Caesar Augustus. 
Caesar had reigned 41 years as the emperor. Rome had returned to this highest level in history of peace and prosperity, of wealth and notoriety. He had revamped the imperial cult, emperor worship. He declared his father divine, thereby making him now titled Son of God. You would think that if God was going to send his son into this backdrop, that this would be the prize fight contender you'd want to go up against. This is the reigning one in the world to be dethroned. And yet throughout his entire ministry, the only nod that Caesar ever receives from the mouth of Jesus himself is that we should just give him what is his and whatever he puts his face on. But give to God whatever he's put his imprint upon. Note too, he refers to Bethlehem as the town of David that they're sent to. Whenever I'm telling stories, you kind of always want to round up. Right? Like if there's a numerical figure that sort of works in your favor, it makes the story more significant. Bethlehem is five miles outside of the city of David, Jerusalem. Why not round up and just say the holy city of Jerusalem? But no, 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 Bethlehem. Bethlehem is associated with David when he was passed over by Samuel and everybody else looking for the next king to be anointed. In lowly and humble beginnings, that Bethlehem, that's where Jesus is associated with, that lowly David, the little boy. And then the announcement comes to shepherds. They have their long history in the Old Testament. And yet these shepherds who kept Flocks outside of Jerusalem, most historians believe that these were the flocks that were being raised that would then be sacrificed in the temple. These sheep were the ones who were going to pay for people's sins in the capital city. They were lowly people. According to law, a shepherd's witness was considered so uncredited that a shepherd actually could not testify in a Jewish court of law. But they can testify to the birth of this coming one. We always tell the story, we have these kind of ruggedly handsome shepherds who come in. They'd often live for months at a time actually outside of the city and some of the best historians, people like graduates from this place, Ray Vanderlaan and others, remind us that many of these shepherds were actually young girls. I've never seen a nativity scene like that. They don't always so historically accurate. We keep trying to reinsert the pageantry of the coming of Christ, but the stories go out of their way to tell them that God tried to get rid of so much of that when he came. The proclamation of good news, euangelion, comes out. Even this is a borrowed term. It's what was announced when Caesar had a new son, and the empire was going to be secure for another generation. No new term for Jesus. This will be a sign to you when you do find him. You'll find him wrapped in cloths and laying in a feeding trough. Yeah, that'll be a sign, all right. You don't see that every day. It didn't dawn on me until recently that the water of life and the bread of life was born in a feeding trough, only to go on to become the sustenance that all creation longed and groaned for.
You'll find them in cloths. Every baby, probably maybe two or three a day or around that number, were born in this area at the time. The sign's not significant, so significant, but a manger, a feeding trough. We clean those up too for our exhibits and our pictures. We make it look so idyllic. Sometimes it's got a little radiant glow coming out of it. There wasn't even a good room, a good place to put them. The son of Caesar would have been born into pomp and circumstance, royal robes put on this tiny baby, the greatest of medical minds at the time surrounding him to attend to his every need and cry, the son of God surrounded by smelly livestock in a barn with a feeding trough. Now why do I pull out all these details? Why tell the story like this? Because it began to dawn on me that the freedom comes in telling this story, not because we have to recreate some, some gigantic significance and pageantry, because God didn't come for your cleaned up self. He didn't come for your Sunday best. He came for the worst of who we are. He didn't come for just the glory moment and the bright lights and the beautiful picture. He came for the blackness inside of my heart, for all of the worst things I've ever said and done and thought. That's what he came for. And he tells the story to tell me that that's what he came for. That I can relate to. I know that part of me. The cleaned up tie, the preaching uniform. Yeah, God came for that, but he came for the worst of who I am. That's why I needed a savior. That's why he came the way that he did. And the angels tell the story because they get the significance in a way that nobody else probably does. Angels who had been there every time in history when God was announcing judgment and saying that something was going to come, they were the deliverer. That's why the shepherds are terrified when they see them because if you see an angel, usually somebody's going to die. And the legions and the armies of God line up, and they must have been wondering even within themselves, is this the time now where we will make it all right, God? Do we get to go in and eliminate all the pain and all the evil, and instead the armies of God line across the heavens, and they don't break out into battle, and they don't break forth upon the earth in the way that Isaiah and others had called for, all that you would rend the heavens and come down. And instead, they break forth, not with battle, but with song. And in this song of the intersection of heaven and earth, God comes in the most untriumphal ways. For an untriumphal me and an untriumphal you. Maybe the best Christmas message we could receive would be the boring one. The dull one where you sit and grind it out studying for exams or you wake up on a Monday morning and hit your snooze button three more times because you're not quite ready to go yet. Because Jesus didn't just come for the flocked trees and our fancy self. But praise the Lord, he came for the broken you and me. The boring everyday you and me. To redeem all of that. And the worst of who we are. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Will you pray with me? Hallelujah, what a Savior you are, God. And may our voices join the angels.
as we celebrate and remind ourselves the way that you told us your kingdom comes. In the lowliest and smallest and obedient of ways. Father, may we be reminded again of the character of your kingdom, of your person, and of your son. Father, thank you that you came, that you sent your son for the worst of who we are and became like us to give us freedom from ourselves. And Father, that you keep coming to us, that the work of your son is not done. Father, we do pray that your Christ, Messiah, Deliverer, would be born again in us in new ways. Keep rebirthing us. May your story keep coming. May it be the center of our holiday time. Ground us again. Free us from ourselves. The creation is still groaning for more and more of you. And so are we. Amen. Will you receive, stand and receive a parting blessing in the rest of the day in your holiday season? Children of the great and living Yahweh, your God has come for you and come for you again. He indwells you now and sends you forth. May his story find ever deeper root within you. May you be invited into his birth and his rebirth, his death and his resurrection, and may it define you in every part of who you are. Go in peace, go in hope, go in love this Advent season. Receive your King. Amen.